Good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome to this event where we're going to be discussing how to govern the future energy market. Uh, I'm Ollie Bartram, a senior economist at the Institute for Government and your chair for today. Uh, I'm delighted uh, that we are holding this event in partnership with Cadent Gas, the largest distribution company uh, in the country, delivering gas to over 11 million homes and businesses. Um, so I was just reflecting with a couple of the panel members uh, beforehand on uh, how dominated this conference is by energy events. Uh, I think that shows, A, how just how important it is uh, as an issue for government to grapple with. Um, but B, given that think tanks like the IFG, companies like Caden are interested in talking about these issues at conference, it shows how many issues are still sort of up in the air and to be resolved. Uh, and the sort of amount of work that a Labour government would have to uh, do, the sort of set of questions it would have to answer uh, if it came into government. Um, so just on the net zero transition, uh, the energy system is going to need to undergo a process of rapid and transformative change uh, if we're going to decarbonize um, by 2030 uh, and uh, improve our energy security. That's likely going to need a change in the rules, systems, processes, uh, that govern that market. We can see in various ways the current structure already slipping and failing, whether that's uh, the delays to uh, delivering critical infrastructure uh, or a, a wide range of other issues. Uh, so one thing we particularly want to touch on today uh, is the role of a future system operator uh, which uh, was announced by the government and, and Ofgem uh, last year. Uh, so to explore some of these issues, uh, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by an excellent panel. Uh, so uh, to my left is uh, Charlotte Nichols, um, Labour MP for Warrington North since 2019. Uh, she's a member of the Business and Trade Committee, Vice Chair of the Net Zero APPG and Co-Chair of the Nuclear Energy. APPG. Um, and then on my far left, we've got uh, Dr. Tony Balance, uh, Chief Strategy and Re Regulation Officer at Cadent Gas, uh, responsible for their decarbonisation strategy. Uh, he has extensive experience in regulation, uh, having previously served uh, in, in Seven Trent uh, and Offwat. Um, to my immediate right, we've got Dara Verse, uh, Deputy Chief Executive at Energy UK. Uh, who's an expert in consumer issues and energy transition uh, and previously led the citizens' advice work in this space. And then uh, on my far right, uh, we have uh, Laura Sands, who chaired the government's energy digitalization task force, uh, chairs the Green Alliance uh, and the British Standards Institute Advisory Board on Net Zero. She's also on the board of uh, <laughs> uh, Energy Systems, Catapult, etc., etc. Um, so, <laughs> uh, a, a, a fantastic set of roles. Um, so, to kick off, uh, I'm going to go straight to Charlotte um, to talk us through if a Labour government wins the election next year, um, you have a very ambitious 
target for decarbonising the energy system by 2030. How would a Labour government go about achieving that? And what role do you see for governance changes in, in helping you to deliver it? Thank you. Um, I think to start out with, it's worthwhile setting just a little bit of context in that it's been just over two years now since the abolition of the Industrial Strategy Council by the government. And there was a recent um, panel where Kemi Badenoch came before what is now the Business and Trade Committee and said that despite the fact that it's been said for about a year or so that there were plans for uh, replacing this council with something, uh, the announcement was that there is no announcement and it isn't being replaced with anything. And we've seen the Whitehall restructuring of what was the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy into the uh, neatly named Desnes and BAT. Um, but there's now no department and no minister with a portfolio that includes industrial strategy. And this is kind of how the problems that we see within energy have got to the place that they're in. First and foremost, for any kind of sensible path to net zero, it is a multi-technology approach. And without sounding too much like Liz Truss, the pie is getting bigger. So when we look at our energy demands as projected as we go into the future, there is not a squabble over sort of different parts of the same pie and which share is renewables and which share is nuclear and which share is hydrogen or what have you. We're going to need all of those things. But the government's entire strategy over the last 10 years has been to say that we uh, don't need an industrial strategy because the government shouldn't be in the business of picking winners, but instead it just guarantees that everyone loses. And they're pitting technologies against each other when we need all of these things. So when you look at the debate within Westminster around you know, whether it's heat pumps or hydrogen, nuclear or hydrogen, all of these things are or, 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 and we end up with none of them. So when you look at where things are today, uh, 50% of our energy mix today is fossil fuels. So one of the key things that Labour is going to have to do when we get in is have an industrial strategy that looks at a whole systems, multi-technology approach to energy, because no single part of the energy mix is a silver bullet. And Labour has in recent years been just as guilty of this as other parties in talking about renewables as being the kind of only show in town when we know that there are days where the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and renewables can't meet all of our electricity demand. I've been very glad to see in recent years the Labour Party becoming much more serious about the role that nuclear has to play within our energy mix. But again, we look at the fact that next year, the majority of our existing nuclear fleet is coming offline. Within our energy mix today, that is about 14%. And what is that going to be replaced with? So one of the things that Rachel Reeves has spoken about is obviously the £28 billion that Labour will be investing every year in green technology to help us get to net zero. And we've seen some recent changes around taxonomy that means that nuclear will be considered a green technology, which is great for ensuring that there's investment there. We're looking at investment into hydrogen. We're looking, because again, you know, Labour's been as guilty of this as other parties in pretending that you can turn off the gas supply. And, you know, that's something that is just, it's a nonsense. And thankfully, again, you know, we have moved into a much more serious position on this, particularly over the last year or so. But the scale of the challenge that we're going to have 
getting in government is enormous. So it's going to be about an industrial strategy. It's going to be about a funding model where the government is not just an investor, but is actually a strategic enabler right across the energy piece. And it's about making sure that there is a workforce strategy that sits behind that. Because if you speak to any part of the energy sector, the biggest issues are planning and people in terms of the delivery of new infrastructure. And every part of the energy system is competing with different parts of the energy system for those same people and skills. Now, if you want to be encouraging young people to take on apprenticeships, training programs, and so on, again, there needs to be that strategic direction from government that says what the target is that we're trying to achieve with those infrastructure aims so that young people want to take the investment of time in going on to these courses. We have a government that you know wonders why we don't have enough railway engineers when they're cutting things like HS2, for example. You know, why as a young person would you want to train to go onto the railway when the government's signaling that railway investment isn't a thing they want to do? You know, we can't get those skills without that plan in place. And it's about making sure that they are good, safe, unionized jobs. And something that Angela Rayner and Justin Matters on the Future of Work Commission have been working to achieve. So, I mean, there's a lot that needs to happen. Um, there's a lot that's wrong uh, that's got us to the place that we're in at the moment. Um, but hopefully with the many conversations we're having across conference about all the different parts that we need to move into place here, um, we can be in the best possible position if we get into government to actually start making some changes here. Excellent. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Uh covering industrial strategy skills uh, lots lots to lots to build on there Dara can I come come to you next uh, I guess for some reactions to what Charlotte's just laid out the importance of planning and people we just heard about um, and how yeah uh, governments can help to deliver that thanks yeah um, for, uh, for those of you who don't know energy UK is a trade association representing um, companies operating right across businesses, right across the energy system. So, whilst we represent power generators, okay, how's how's this? Is this better? Yeah. yeah. I, I think they just did. You tell me if this works. Does it work? Yep. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, I was just introducing Energy UK. So we represent about 85% of power generation across the UK. That does include nuclear, uh, offshore, onshore, solar, but it also includes um, gas-fired generation. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, we need to be quite carefully thinking about what the transition means and how we move to a space of having no more unabated gas. Um, and that is a, a careful conversation, and it's right to be thinking, you know, about how we how we move industry in this space and what that means in terms of things like storage and, and other technologies that we need to get. So, and we also represent retailers. So there's the, the point around people that I will come back to. And we also uh, represent companies active right across the market, whether that's flex, aggregation, um, EV, I'm so sorry, it's quite distracting, <laughs> EV, um, EV chargers, heat pump manufacturers, you know, the, the whole lot. And the reason I say this is because I think that one of the things we take for granted in energy is that, you know, if you take if you if you take action and um, make a difference in one part, I feel like everyone's watching him close the window. <laughs> so if you if you make a decision that impacts on one part of the market, it has a knock on effect right across the system. And I think we have to always be mindful of that when we're talking about the energy market. Um, you're absolutely right about planning and people. Um, 
you know, there's 600 projects waiting to connect right now at Grid. That's that's a huge backlog, and we need to think quite carefully about what the regulatory and non-regulatory barriers are. The reality is, is that the UK has led the world when it comes to decarbonising. We should be really proud of our progress. You know, emissions have reduced by almost half since 1990. We are now at that tricky bit. We need to do some of the really difficult things that impact on people, whether that's pylons, um, decarbonising heat, improving things in homes. And that's harder, right? It's more intrusive. You're not doing it at that power generation end. And when we're talking about that, we are talking about, you know, you're right. again, Charlotte, you're right. You know, it's a whole system. It's a mix of technologies. But the difficulty when we're talking about changing things for people is it's not just about what happens in the home. So we're going to be talking about decarbonizing heat in homes. We're going to be talking about improving energy efficiency in homes. We're going to be talking about making things smart and flexible so we can use all this amazing clean power generation, get it to people's homes so they can use it when it's cheapest and most plentiful on the grid. That doesn't happen without a system that is able to deliver it to when it, where it's needed, when it's needed most, to be able to respond to price signals and to be able to you know, really react to the dynamic change that we need in this space. So I think we're absolutely right to be sitting here talking about how a UK energy system should be governed because when we're talking about governance, we're talking about fairness, we're talking about who pays and we're talking about how we make sure that that is shared fairly across the country. Um, Two last points I think I'll make is that there's a lot going on when it comes to governance that might feel slightly outside of the system, but it's absolutely intrinsic to it. So we've got the review of electricity market arrangements, which is incredibly important in this space. And there is a, you know, there's a huge groundswell of support for a sort of evolutionary uh, approach to this, not revolutionary, because sometimes, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences and costs. So I think that's kind of part of that transition and the careful thinking we need to do. And then the other is retail market reform. We're not going to be able to make the changes that we need to make in people's homes unless we think very carefully about how we're protecting customers, how we're making sure they've got the right information, the advice and support they need to make the changes in their homes. So when we talk about a system, it's not something that happens over here that's divorced from the reality of people's lives. If we get this right, we could make sure that people have stable, affordable pricing, a great experience, improve trust in the um, relationship they have with their energy supplier, and really just make sure we're using energy when it's cheapest and most plentiful. So I think, you know, making sure we're thinking about that big, broad picture is going to be important if we're going to be successful. Great. Thanks very much, Dara. Laura, I want to come to you next. I mean, just for any general thoughts you have, really, but uh, but also be interested to get into the discussion of what the role of yeah. um, FSO is in, in helping to deliver some of these things, either now or later in the discussion. Totally. So, um, hi, I'm Laura Sands, and I'm really interested in the geeky bits. So, mm. you know, if you want to look at your mobile phone while I'm speaking, totally understand. But this particular role, this future system operator, is going to be absolutely crucial as we go forward. We, we've sort of muddled along, you know, and we've sort of got quite a lot of assets in place. But for example, I mean, absolutely, as Charlotte and, and Dara said, we need, it's a complex system that is emerging. And what we've done is we've built all these fantastic wind farms, but, but no roads to them. Oh, fantastic. So we haven't got the transmission. We have um, built um, sort of, you know, fabulous um, sort of, you know, generation, but we haven't actually built any storage. 
So, you know, the weather does not take price signals. So what we've got to do is to understand that this is an interrelated system design and that everything, that net zero is a very different concept. It's not a consumption concept. It's all about optimization of the assets that we have. So I think it's a very, very exciting moment, but we need to start to come out of our technology silos. We need to understand that we've got blended products and systems. And in some ways, this is a supply chain like other sectors are. And we've got to break down those technology barriers and actually those market barriers. So the future system operator, fantastic, it's going to appear. I, though, am a little bit worried about its role, how the other institutions interact with it, and exactly what its sort of remit is when it looks at the future. So I've been having quite a lot of discussions with, with the civil servants, etc., and I sort of worry that um, they want the FSO, which is going to be a key architect of this whole system design. I worry that they're currently looking at it as a sort of advisory body. And I hope that any future government absolutely, in many ways, gives it more authority and more power. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a very long sort of circle of consultation, um, discussion with, with Desners, um, opening it up to sort of judicial review, etc. We do need decisions to be made. Time is running out. So I hope very much that it becomes much more than an advisory group or a very educated think tank. It needs power and authority. The second thing it needs to do is to understand whole system costs. Currently, what we're doing is we're, we're worried about the commodity market. Well, in 1990, a terabyte of data was a million dollars, and today it's five cents. Now, I'm not saying that an electron is going to go down to that level. But actually, data costs just as much because we've got infrastructure costs. It's a whole system cost. And currently, we're also costing it in its technology silos rather than whole system costs. And that needs to be a very important part of the FSO's uh, remit. We also have, and the FSO's, or the ESO has been very clear about this, we need to get 20 to 30 gigawatts of flexibility onto the system. And so it's about demand as much as supply. So I just ask you, how many people change their, um, their alarm clock in the morning, every morning? Three people? One or two, right. You know something? The weather does not take price signals, as I said. We are terribly boring. We are much more predictable as an asset within this system. And the FSO has to open up the market to this demand side, which is absolutely crucial in terms of delivering us whole system costs and flexibility. So the last point I wanted to make really, well, two last points. One was about skills. And again, uh, I love the energy sector, but you know we've got 400 people who run the energy sector and they all know each other's golf handicap. Right? Um, we are going to have a much more complex system design. And so we need new skills. And I would give you certain organizations, DHL, that delivers 
packages, millions and millions of different packages around the world. This is the sort of complexity level of skills that we're going to require going forward, not in some ways this very much more sort of vanilla system we have today. Um, we also need skills at the FSO around hydrogen, gas, and how these are going to be blended. But I would like to see an, e an FSO that has authority and the powers to actually deliver these whole system costs, which will not always please everybody. I would love them to be digital first. I would say that, but really, really important. 100 million actions and assets are going to be on the system. If anyone thinks that they can manage this in an analog way, we're going to have the lights going out. And they must look at whole system costs. Every time you put an EV car or a PV on somebody's house, you actually reduce whole system costs. So let's be really excited about the FSO. I think it needs greater ambition by the next government to actually shape a really important organization that will deliver us decarbonization at best cost. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks very much, Laura. Um, Tony, I'll come to you come to you next for some for some uh, more thoughts. Uh, I guess we've focused quite a lot on uh, decarbonisation of the electricity system so far, but by its nature, the FSO is there to think about the whole system. Uh, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the rest of the system. Yeah, super. Thank you, Ollie, and thank you for the Institute for Government uh, for putting this event on. When you have a a topic with governance in the title, you're always slightly worried that people will turn up, but we've got an excellent panel here and some music to go along. So, um, so nice to see everyone this morning. So I want to take this question from the point of view of a gas distribution company like my own, because, and we've touched on this already, but decarbonization of home heating is going to be one of the biggest challenges that we have to face into as a country and probably bigger than anywhere else in Europe and probably even the world because of the reliance that we have on our gas central heating systems that we all love and we take for granted. But we've also got very poorly insulated homes in the UK, you know, 60% of homes with EPC um, D or less. So we've got huge challenges to wean people off that gas central heating system. Okay, we're under no illusion that in order to hit net zero, we are going to have to dis we are going to have to decarbonize the, the gas system, but we simply can't assume and assume and, and um, Laura touched on this that what we've done in the power sector or what we're doing in the power sector can simply just be rolled forward into um, into this sector and we can simply determine what happens to consumers. Home heating is going to be hugely hard to abate. We have, as I say, this amazing gas network on an average day, and again we touched on the, this, but just to give you a few facts and figures, we use three you we put three times as much energy through the gas network that we do through the power system and seven times on a peak uh, cold winter's day. So we have a huge challenge in decarbonizing the gas sector. 80% of homes in the country, 22 million homes with gas boilers today, they all need to be changed in some way through heat pumps, hydrogen ready boilers or heat networks. So it's going to be huge. And I think for the first time we've got this we're going to have to have this systematic consideration of what we do with the gas sector, which was designed to deliver heat to people's homes, and what we do 
with the electricity sector, which was not designed to deliver heat to people's homes. And if you look at the map of the overlay between the gas networks and the electricity networks, they're not, it's not a nice picture where we all overlay each other. So this system optimization that we've got to do is gonna be really complicated. So let me just touch on the, on the policy framework. I think it's fair to say that we are seeing the most substantial, you know, I like this piece of music, but <laughs> the most substantial changes in the policy and regulatory framework in energy than we've seen in the last 30 years. And I think it's fair to say that without that change, we have a very tired system that will simply not be able to deliver what, what we need. Um, and at one point, it's probably worth reminding ourselves that we were the envy of the world in the design of our regulatory and policy institutions with RPR minus X and Rio, the CFD reg regime for offshore wind and so on and so forth. But today, the problems are much bigger. They require trade-offs between different sectors, a much bigger role for planning and critically stronger incentives, therefore, investors to pile in multi-billions of investment to deliver net zero. We have a consultation on economic regulation. We've had a strategy and policy statement out for consultation, proposed future system operator, a possible amendment to Ofgem's duty around net zero. So lots of lots of change coming. And GB Energy on top of that means that I think we're going to have to stare at the institutional framework uh, in a way that we haven't had to, to do before. I think... I think the FSO is a huge step forward. Like Laura have concerns about what its role is going to be precisely. I think you can see a clear role for the electricity <coughs> transmission sector where that top-down planning and coordination is very much required. But like Laura, what decision-making powers does it have? Because the last thing we need is another advisory body with the CCC, the NIC, and lots of people commenting on what we might need as opposed to people deciding what we need. But I think just going back to domestic heating, I think that's where we're going to need to enhance what we've, we've got. Um, and I think three things occur to me. I think we're going to have to hugely strengthen our local planning and institutions. You know, solutions can't simply be imposed nationally through the FSO or some some other body um, and it goes back to what I said about the maps we're going to have to coordinate between sectors we're going to have to build in what we would call adaptive planning so doing plans but adapting them as we go as we learn new information how technology shifts and all of all the rest of it and then the third thing I think we're going to have to have what I call net zero demonstrations we've had and have proposals for hydrogen trials. I think we need to broaden the remit of that and say, let's look at a multitude of technologies in small areas, bigger areas, and gradually get people familiar with different te technological mixes. Because if we're going to make changes, customers expect to have some choice. You can't simply impose stuff and we're gonna have to take people along with us. Last comment will be on the regulatory framework that sits within that, I think. Um, we're going to need quite substantial change there. I think it's, it will be useful to have clarity about what we really want from our regulators. I don't think we've had the proper debate about that for a long time. We simply just keep giving regulators more jobs to do. And there's a danger we do that with the FSO as well. It becomes a huge bucket. We just lob the next problem in there and say, please solve that for us. But three specific things for regulation. It needs to be less bureaucratic and complex, maybe having more rate of return type features to it. It needs to be much more long-term and less politicized. Regulation has been 
um, caught up in the politicization of energy and other sectors. And the third thing, we need to have quite specific duties for the, the regulators, and that comes from clarity of understanding of what we want. To conclude, I think the FSO is a big step forward, but like Laura, concerns about the shape of it, what it does. We need something more for domestic heating, and I think we need a simpler, less politicised and longer-term regulatory framework. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks Thanks very much, Tony. So I'm going to do uh, just a couple of questions from me to the panel, and then I can already see hands going up for once I've done that. So excellent. Good to know the room is full of eager people. Um, so I think there are two issues I wanted to pick up with panelists, and you can choose whether which or both of them you want to do. So one is the issue that kept coming up, particularly in Laura and Tony's comments, on exactly what duties and responsibilities the FSO should have. I think both of you spoke about how we don't want it to just be another advisory body uh, commenting on what we might do. Uh, and we need someone to decide what to do. Um, I mean, the Institute for Government loves a quango uh, and a, t a technocratic one, um, but I guess a response to that might be that uh, you kind of want politicians to be making these big decisions um, on the advice of the FSO. So what sort of decision-making powers would they have? Um, and then the other issue that might be helpful to touch on, I think, is how we can enable uh, investment in infrastructure and allow it to be delivered, and how the role of the FSO and any other governance changes, including GB Energy, um, or e even just you know greater policy stability might help to drive that. Um, so uh, if I kick off with you, Charlotte, on uh, either of those two. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the point that I made about what we consider the role of government to be here. And I think that it is about having that strategic enabling role. And that obviously sounds, you know, a little uh, <laughs> sort of vague and spurious. But, it, you know, it, it goes back to this point about what the actual barriers are. So if you are a nuclear company, for example... Um, let's say you were building a large-scale nuclear power station down on the south coast. Um, it's going to be very difficult to encourage you to do that if you're constantly having to pick fights with the RSPB, with random local parish councillors who've decided that they don't want it, and all of these sorts of things that... You know, we saw what happened in Wildfire, um, up in Anglesey, where, again, Hitachi were putting millions of pounds into something that, you know, they wanted to put spades in the ground, they wanted to deliver a project, but could not get it through planning in any reasonable time frame. And then that investment becomes something that they say, well, you know, we don't want to end up with a stranded asset. We don't want to start building something that we're not going to be able to complete. We're, we're paying money just to kind of own this piece of land. And, you know, the, the economics of it don't stack up anymore. The, the government should have stepped in and made it something that was worthwhile to do. And that's not actually, you know, when we talk about the kind of fiscal environment that we're going to be inheriting if we get in. You know, some of this stuff isn't even about the government being the investor. It's about having that enabling role that allows industry and the private sector to do these things themselves. It's taking those barriers out. Um, so, you know, 
being willing to pick a fight with this kind of turbo nimbyism that we see, you know, deciding that things are in the national interest and taking a much tougher role on um, sort of planning, then I think it's sort of having, again, a level of realism about how some of this stuff is going to be delivered. I mean, you know, we saw with the sort of failure of the smart meters rollout, um, you know, we've just seen in the northwest the um, hydrogen village that was meant to be taking place where, you know, when they gave the public the choice, not only did they not want the hydrogen, but they also didn't want the heat pumps they were being offered for free either because people just didn't want change. Um, and there's a role for government in making sure that that investment that people are willing to put in and companies are willing to put in to get us there is something that can actually happen because government is not just about the regulatory environment but it's about the messaging it's about the direction it's about what the country's priorities are um, and none of this stuff is going to happen without the government doing that great uh thanks very much charlotte uh, i'll come to you next uh... um i think that we talked about so I think the kind of a theme of this year's party conferences has been policy certainty. And I think it's important to recognize like why certainty matters to the private sector. The reality is that we've done well in this country because of things like regulatory and policy and governance certainty. Tony talked about sort of Rio CFD, but the, what that gives to business is the confidence to invest. And we are operating in an environment where Globally, you know, capital has a choice of location. And right now it's not choosing the UK. And that is problematic for many reasons. Primarily because in 2019 money, it's going to cost us £1.4 trillion to meet net zero. Um, over 70% of that has to come from the private sector. Those are OBR numbers. Um, it, this is very much about how the public and private sector can work together to deliver that, I think, that this isn't sort of a kind of what one sector needs to fix and solve it. But we won't attract that sort of investment into the economy without that policy certainty. So I think that's what that's the that's that policy space and that partnership space. I think there's been so many interesting comments made about the sort of regulatory certainty that we need. We've got 27 years to deliver this industrial revolution. Mostly they take around 50 years, previous big industrial scale revolutions. We need to be talking about the economy, not the net zero economy. And we need to be talking about jobs, not green jobs and skills. Um, and I think that's the kind of framing for all of us in these sorts of rooms where we're involved in these conversations. The reality is we are also in a cost of living crisis and an affordability crisis, and people are really struggling really struggling and not just to pay for their energy bills although they are a huge part of household outgoings you know people are really struggling because of interest rates and mortgages and rents so life is chaotic and life is complicated um more people are on negative budgets for example that you know they've got literally nothing left once they've done their sort of outgoing coming that's not news to most people who you know who have who have friends who are in their family who are in, in experiencing hardship. So, you know, we have to be mindful that we're talking all of this about all of this in a bit of an abstract way. And the reality is, is if we want to make changes to people's homes, we have to take with them with us on the journey. Right now, there is still an amount of uh, an element of choice and control 
the longer we take, the less choice and control people will have. And so behavior change is a huge part of this conversation. And it's not something industry can do alone and it's not something government can do alone. And we have to work with consumer groups and the third sector to make sure that we do this well. Um, I don't, you know, energy's, energy is a policy area like many others. In the cross subsidies is always going to be a question of kind of how we're cross subsidizing across the country when it comes to costs and paying for things. But it's also like other policy areas where we have to make that kind of trade-off between national equity and local diversity. And we have to think quite carefully about what that is. Excellent. Thanks very much, Dara. Come to you next, Laura. Um, just picking up on, on Dara's point, there's something very um, that we I think we've seen over the last couple of months, and that is citizens, voters, consumers have a veto on net zero if this isn't done fairly. And I think you really, really, you know, you ignore the public and their understanding of this journey at all of our perils. So I think it's an absolutely crucial point. But I do actually think, coming back to the geeky bit, future system operator, that that's why it's absolutely crucial that they, and actually currently nobody, owns whole system costs. And in many ways, what they're doing is creating, at the moment, we're creating lots of costs for different parts of the system without understanding that actually um, you've got to look at this as one system. I think there's a really important point here, and it really comes back to your question, Ollie, and that is about what is the difference between government and the future system operator. And it is absolutely crucial that government our representatives own the policy space. And the policy space in this instance would be the outcomes that that government wants of the system, um, the trade-offs that there will always be through any transition, through any journey. And we've got to be explicit about those, and government, not the FSO, needs to make those decisions. And the timescale. So I see government having a very, very important role in policy. But this is the context in which the delivery, which is something that government should probably not be involved in, in this architecture, is the future system operator. So within the confines of policy, they need to be very, very clearly responsible and have the authority for spatial planning, for um, technology blending and optimization, for the standards that need to be put into the system, um, the markets that are going to unlock that system, and also, very importantly, picking up on Dara's point, the investability and the, cl clear, the, the, the greatest clarity that we can have between policy and delivery will actually give investors much more certainty because it's the volatility of the politics that actually puts on to our cost of capital. Every single time there is some random conversation going on, we end up having to, as customers, we end up having to pay that cost of capital premium. So I would see those as the differentiators. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Laura. Uh, I'll come to you, uh, Tony, now. Yeah, the risk of going last is, is you know, I agree with everything that everyone said because that was, I mean, terrific uh, comments. I think, you know, Charlotte and Dara are talking about that, that certainty and the ability for investors to get down and, and, and 
law then nicely capping that off with saying if we don't have that certainty then the cost of investment is going to go up just a bit like laura coming back to this decision making power question that you posed Alex. i think i think this is a tricky one I, I kind of go where laura's going which is the more decision making authority the fso has so much the better because i think if you if you look back in history where kind of regulatory frameworks have wobbled a bit is where government kind of step in and they politicize the thing you create the uncertainty things become short term become expedient you don't take those longer term perspectives and that's what the fso needs to have is that longer term perspective laying out future plans i think where it gets really tricky is this whole affordability thing because it, in some sense you know if you if you look at the multi-billions that need to be paid for and yes consumers citizen society benefit by lower costs in the future but in the medium term, those costs have to be borne. Um, if you sim if the FSO simply says, well, we need to create all of these assets and these X billion pounds and the bill that comes out at the bottom end of the machine says it's X and X is not affordable, that's where it gets tricky. And uh, you know, ultimately, government will have some role to play in signing off what is, in, in essence, what consumers and citizens need to pay for. But that needs to be limited because if it gets too politicized then you would just have another institution providing yet more advice to the government and then the government and the people taking the decisions and you go back to square one where you've got short-term decisions driving up the cost of capital driving up the cost even more and you don't get to deliver net zero either so i think it's going to be really tricky it requires all parties to kind of hold their nerve in that new institutional framework recognize and respect the different roles that people have to make it work and function excellent thanks thanks very much tony i, th I think this is such an interesting issue because i think if you have independent institutions making unpopular choices it can often go quite badly i mean we've seen the uh, bank of england the flack the bank of england has taken for its rising interest rates for example to take a something from a completely different area so Audience questions. Uh, we have a roving mic somewhere. Fantastic. Can we take these two gentlemen in the front as well? Hello. Uh, Tom Bragg from Cambridge Carbon Footprint. So with the um, ever-lowering costs of producing electricity from wind and solar, what would it take for that to be reflected in the consumer price for electricity instead of basing that on the cost of electricity from gas. Excellent. Thanks very much. I'm Adrian Johnston. I'm a parish councillor. We're trying to put a solar... So I, I'm, mine's more a practical one, right, by the way. So we're trying to stick solar panels onto our parish hall uh, as much as we can, and I know what's going to come back. We're going to spend three months talking to our DNO. Our DNO will tell us that we can only put five kilowatts or whatever it is, maybe 3.6. We'll find out, won't we? We'll, uh, and therefore, what I'm going to say is practically, how do we make, because DNOs don't have to put an upgrade system. So, how does this network make my DNO get off its, get off its thing and start to invest in the infrastructure on basic infrastructure? And the last point, right, is that. And this is more for Charlotte, right? I support nuclear power and everything and all the rest of it. And I think we need to fill our boots. But there's one renewable that you can predict. It's called Tidal. And 
how we got in Labour, I've not heard, I've been through loads of Fins meetings and I've not heard one mention of it. Okay. Hi, thank you very much. Jenny Russon from the MCS Foundation. Um, I'd like a little bit more elaboration of what you mean by politicised and how what you think needs to happen to depoliticise the situation. Does that mean listening to the science that 45 independent studies have said that heat pumps and heat networks should play the leading role in heat decarbonisation, not hydrogen, and that actually transitioning the gas network to support hydrogen would actually cost the same amount that it would cost to actually build the infrastructure in the electricity grid? So, uh, yeah, what, what do you mean by depoliticizing it? Does that mean following the science? Thanks very much. Uh, so, uh, we have questions there on uh, lowering costs of renewables and when that might be reflected in the prices that we all pay. Uh, the issue of uh, DNOs and uh, investment in infrastructure and how they might be improved by changes in future governance. <laughs> Uh, a sort of uh, provocation about tidal and then uh, the issue of uh, politicization of regulators uh, and more detail on that. So I think I'll come to you first, Charlotte, for A, that specific question on tidal, but also your reflections on the other questions that we just heard. Yeah, I mean, one of the um, sort of very first things that I mentioned was around the multi-technology approach to get to net zero and the fact that we're going to need all of these things. Now, there was a tidal project for the Mersey Bay Tidal Lagoon that was spoken about for here. It's something that I'm in favour of, and certainly in terms of constituencies like mine, which are very close to here, um, you know, will be good green jobs in my area if that's something that's happening. But again, there has not been a strategic direction taken that that's something that we want the... Uh, investment environment around it hasn't been right and it's something that you know I'd like to see but there's no sign that it's something that's coming anytime soon um, but certainly I think title's something I'm in favour of. I think when we've spoken around um, sort of depoliticisation a lot of it is about um, you know the government had their what was their slogan long-term decisions for a brighter future or what have you you know I think that there does need to be in energy a bit of a conversation across parties and something that regardless of who the government of the day is those kind of long-term plans which enable that stability the investment environment for people to invest and the knowledge that whoever comes into power that you know things aren't just going to be kind of completely flipped around in maybe four years time if you're thinking about what a 10 15 20 year investment plan looks like when it comes to heat pumps and i mentioned the um hydrogen village um, project. It was something uh, that Caden were doing in Ellesmere Port, which isn't far from here. And because they were wanting to do a sort of proof of concept around hydrogen deployment, obviously it was something that was offered to people because they wanted the you know community to be involved in it. And they kind of said, look, you know, here's what we're doing. You can have hydrogen, but because some people might not have wanted it, they said, or you can have a heat pump. And people chose neither. The project isn't happening. They literally, they could not get this project off the ground. And it's
think that that, I don't think it's fair to say that. Just to be very clear, I'm not in any way anti-heat pump. My, my point was around the fact that because the public were not taken with the project, there was a lot of investment that Caden were willing to make. There was two different technologies on offer. And just as people decided that they didn't want when it came to things like smart meters in their homes, you look at, you know, how insulation rollout across the country is going. There needs to be taking people with us for these things to happen, because whether it's electric vehicle charging that at the moment, you know, requires digging up your neighbor's driveway to get a charging point on your street, you can want the car and an electric vehicle. But if your neighbor decides that they really quite like their driveway and they're not going to allow it to be dug up, kind of doesn't matter what you want because it's your neighbor who has the decision making power there and it's the same with some forms of heat pump some forms of other you know again it's not just the individual consumer it's the whole community that have got to be brought along with these discussions and as we've said before you know there is a level of choice and agency that the public have got at the moment but the closer we get to our net zero kind of um cut-off point the fewer decisions people are going to have and stuff is going to end up being forced on people that they're not going to like and things are going to have to be done in a much more expensive way in a much more disruptive way to people's lives then if we're having these conversations now we're setting the groundwork and we're putting those things in place where regardless of who the government is and you know what we've seen from Rishi Sunak about some of the things that the government are saying about net zero and everything else, you know, that creates all of this uncertainty in people's mind. It gets people charged up and fired up about it. It gets them thinking, well, I don't want to invest in this at the moment because I don't have the money to do so. And it, it makes that even more difficult. So that's what when we talk about depoliticizing it, it's it's kind of taking I mean, it sounds bad to say taking the heat out of it when we're talking about heat pumps <laughs> and heating for homes and stuff, but, you know, taking the political heat out of those decisions um, in order that we can actually get to where we want to go. I think that's that's broadly what, I mean, I don't want to speak for the rest of the panel, but that's certainly what I mean when I talk about depoliticizing these things. Great, thanks very much, Charlotte. Uh, Tony, can I come to you next on, on any of those questions, but I guess particularly how we choose technologies? Yeah. I'll... This one, I'm probably going to make a video known to uh, make it so that people, you're talking Sorry, but there are plenty of people in the room who have questions and I want to make time for them. Thanks. I, I just want to pick up on your, because I think we do have to get on sooner rather than later with decoupling the way in which pricing works and having yeah, everything absolutely. linked to the gas price. Yeah. I'm a, work for a gas company, but it's not sensible. You know, we do need better pricing and that needs to come about sooner rather, rather than later. I think you make, make, make a terrific I'd like to answer your question, but I, it's not my area of expertise, but I, I get the sentiment. I just want to come back to this kind of depoliticization thing. So I, I think I get your question, but the the premise is almost like, well, the science will solve it. And it's not it's not just about thermodynamics. This is about social policy. This is about economics. This is about trade-offs. This is about politics. It's complicated. Um Frankly, citing articles where someone's counted a number of articles from around the world and saying that's science, that's not really science. That's just an opinion that's fueling a debate. I think we need a more sensible debate because I think we're, who knows what the solution is longer term to domestic heating. You, you, can, you can look like you know the answer, but I, I don't think anybody does know what the answer is in 2050. They say it's all going to be heat pumps, it's all going to be heat networks or whatever. I think we need optionality. We need to let different technologies 
um, see, see the light of day. We need proper trials. I, you're going back to the, the, the Whitby trial. One of the things that was lacking there was political leadership. Putting a gas company out in front to lead a project of saying, we're going to come and change your heating system is destined to fail, you might say. So, you know, and you could not get the government to come and stand behind that project and say, well, this is a government project. It's not a cadent project. We want this to go ahead. This is what we want to do. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm getting slightly heated, but I think we use the cliche, <laughs> take the heat out of the debate. Let's have a reasonable conversation. I think heat pumps are going to play a very important role, but we've got to get people wanting to, to uptake them. We need new standards on new housing that will help the uptake of heat pumps because we've got to get people familiar with that technology. There's a lack of trained engineers out there who can install them. You know, when I talk to people, they're considering having a heat pump, but they go, but I can't find a plumber or a technician who uh, who I trust. And that's not, a, I'm not casting aspersions. It's just the reality. Whereas you can, you can find a plumber who can install a gas boiler. So there's lots of things, but I think just having that openness, that willingness to consider different technologies, you know, we're clearly promoting hydrogen as one of those technologies. You know, it, hydrogen is going to happen for industry, heavy transport, and there's a residual benefit for everybody else because we've got a network that can transport it. There are questions there that we need to answer to make sure that that's a viable technology going forward. So it's not the silver bullet for everything. It's an option to keep on the table. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, I, I wonder, Dara, uh, Laura, do, do either of you want to come in on the specific question around DNOs? Do you have any views on that? <laughs> right. Um, so, yes, absolutely. And, and just picking up on Tony's point, but your point about the decoupling of gas and electricity, it has to happen. We need a decarbonisation dividend for customers, and it's there. It's just the way the market. We're trying to squeeze a totally new system, a renewable system, into a fossil fuel paradigm. And they're different, and it, we're getting the worst of all worlds. So, and I think most people recognize that. I think there's another interesting analogy about your um, about your village hall and all the rest of it is we're moving, um, some of us remember something called the mainframe and IBM, right? And IBM said, this PC mobile phone world, it's never going to take off, right? Oh, never going to have any of that. And actually, this is the transition that we're going through, where everything has been centralized and energy has come like a hose pipe and sort of sprayed you with it, right? Actually, now what we're getting is a lot of distributed energy. It's absolutely crucial. And weirdly, you know, people like big stuff um, and the sector loves, you know, big is beautiful. Actually, all of these distributed energy systems actually creates a more resilient energy system. So we start to have what I would call, you know, self-generation, distributed system design. The problem for the DNOs is, firstly, they have been lax in connection, but actually they haven't been allowed to invest. And they've been told, and this is how the planning has been, it's been just in time. So in about five years' time, they'll, you, they'll put your project on their map and Ofgem will say, oh, fantastic. And then they'll say, yes, well, then why don't you schedule that for another three years hence? So that is now eight years that you've been hanging around. And there are billions of pounds hanging around here. 
ready to invest. So it is absolutely crucial. And it is about <coughs> Ofgen's mentality. And what we've got to do, we all recognize, we are going to, whatever the heating solution is, we are going to need a shed load, shed load, uh, more electricity. And so where is the system design that is saying, we are not building the roads to the farms? And as a result, we're actually losing a lot of energy. So it's not just you that can't get it, but actually we're losing a lot of energy on the generation side because we're having to curtail it. I think everyone's got the message. I hope so. The FSO is a very, very important agent of change and agent of direction that we have got to take. And hopefully, one day, you will have your solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving no guarantees, <laughs> but I'm sure you will. Uh, oh, can I make just one other point? And that is, we haven't talked about energy efficiency should always be the first fuel. And I'm not, I, I yeah. would like the FSO also to have a responsibility to actually really drive efficiency through the system. We are super wasteful. Thanks, Laura. Dara, anything to add? Um, I think it's important to be led by the science. I think it's important to go with the six carbon budget. Um, mm -hmm. 90% of homes are able to have electrified energy. That, 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 electrified heat, that doesn't mean that it will be affordable. And I think that's the trade-off and that's the conversation about the social policy. Um, uh, uh, but I, I also think sort of your point about decarbonisation, dividend and decoupling, we need to... We need to think carefully about it because it's absolutely what should happen, but it needs to happen in an orderly way. And the reason it needs to happen in an orderly way is because if we don't do it well, those who are poorest and least able to afford it will end up bearing the largest part of the cost. And that's system maintenance and that's affordability and that's higher bills. And that is why it has to be done carefully. So I don't think it's an overnight solution, but it absolutely, and it's the direction of travel. Great. Thanks, Dara. Uh, uh, the panel have been giving really rich, detailed answers, which means I have <laughs> another way of saying long, but they have been very, very good. Um, so I have time for one more question. I can see one hand there uh, at the back. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Um, Abby Badcock Bro, I'm representing the ESO, which is about to embark on the episode journey. So thank you very much for giving us all of our uh, remit and hopefully mandate of us being able to do more. Um, I'm really interested, having been in the energy sector now for 15 years, to, to come back to this problem that we keep coming up against around silos and how we think very much from a silo perspective. We think either we are generation or we are transmission or we are distribution. Um, you know, we, we don't think whole systems. Um, and we also think in a very energy-centric way. You know, coming here and exhibiting at this particular event is very different from coming to an energy event and where we all talk amongst ourselves and get super excited because we believe in net zero and we are a really important part of that, but others don't, or they don't see it and they're not in that same mindset. So whilst we um, in the ESO are thinking all the time about this transition, um, I just wanted to ask the panel your thoughts on how we can collectively as an industry sort of break down those barriers, those silos, and start putting perhaps other interests ahead of our own agendas. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks very much. I hope you don't mind that we've just been sitting up here talking about you for, for an hour. <laughs> um, but uh, So can I ask the panelists to uh, answer the question of how to break down silos and any other reflections on energy governance in about one minute each, I think, please? 
Uh, I'll start with you, Charlotte. Again, goes back to industrial strategy and the government's role in bringing these things together. Different parts of the industry are always going to have different competing priorities. It's the role of government to work across the whole energy piece and make sure that the overall strategy is something where it's that approach right across the piece. And I think um, employer and um, trade unions and industry bodies do need to be working in a much more collaborative way than things are at the moment. So that's a challenge to you all as well. Excellent. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Dara? No, it's, it's absolutely that. I think from the industry point of view, I hope you see your trade association doing that. And uh, we are trying to think right across the system and also right across the value chain and never forgetting that customers are part of that and people mm-hmm. and households because it's an essential service and it's easy to get into the depth and the quagmire of all of this, but it's an essential service. People rely on it. Laura? Um, I think that we need to be technology neutral, but absolutely committed to outcomes. I think that's crucial. And I really do think the whole energy sector needs to understand demand as much as supply. And without that, we're going we're going to have a very, very expensive system. So that's the opportunity. And it's up to you to close, Tony. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I agree with much of what everyone said. I think we've just got to have better coordination across the sectors. I mean, the premise of your question, there definitely is you know, like electricity versus gas and the gas versus electricity thing, which we've got to try and take the barriers down. You kind of look to the the FSO in due course to help some of that coordination and force that that conversation to be had and be open-minded about the, the future technology solutions because, you know, a lot will change in the next 15, 20 years in terms of technological improvement. So I think having that open mind to new technologies, new ways of doing things is, is super important too. Um, but thank you very much. It was a really good session and very well chaired so thank you thank you, thank you. Uh-